This is Tom Fox. Welcome to a very special week on the FCPA Compliance Report. On Monday, August 31st, will be my 500th episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. This week, I've asked five of the top compliance commentators around to share with me some of their reflections on what has changed from their perspective over the past 10 years or so in compliance. We begin with Mike Volkoff on changes in FCPA enforcement. Matt Kelly visits with us about changes that he has seen from his business journalist hat perspective. Jonathan Armstrong talks about changes in data protection and data privacy. Jay Rosen talks about changes from his unique business development perspective. And finally, Jonathan Marks talks to us about the changes he sees in compliance mirroring those he saw in internal audit after the passage of Sarbanes-Oxley. On my 500th episode, I'll talk about some of the changes that I've seen and also some of the highlights from podcasting over the past eight years or so. This is a very special week. I hope you will enjoy it as much as I've enjoyed producing it and bringing it to you. Thanks for being a part of the FCPA Compliance Report and I hope you will stay with me on the journey to episode 1000. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox back again with another episode leading up to my 500th anniversary show. Today, I'm extraordinarily pleased to have my good friend and colleague, Jonathan Marks, with me. Jonathan is a CPA by professional background and has been an internal audit for many par- long parts of his professional career. So I wanted to maybe get his perspective on compliance from internal audit, internal controls, and the CPA uh, angle. So, Jonathan, with that incredibly long-winded introduction, first of all, welcome, and thank you for uh, taking part in this celebration with me. Thanks, Tom. Congratulations on 500. So, Jonathan, one of the things that uh, I wanted to visit with you about, and I've been intrigued to hear you talk about over the years, is many of the things you see in compliance today and have seen over the past 10 years were struggles, issues, controversies, and things that you dealt with in the internal audit profession, I would say largely after Enron and Sarbanes-Oxley, but you might take it a little bit further back than that. So with that, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the uh, development of your profession and and how you saw that mirrored in the compliance world. Yeah, no, Tom, it's a great subject. Um, You know, I can recall going back to 1988, you know, doing audits and working with the internal auditors, and they were you know, not highly regarded individuals at that time, you know, some of the projects that they did, you know, were not, I would, I would call, um, critical to the operations of the organization. It was, they were more just sort of thoughts that maybe the audit committee had or the board had, and, you know, didn't really provide a lot of punch. And even if the internal audit group did, or the internal auditor, a lot of, Internal audit groups way back when were um, had it consisted of one individual, much like compliance today. Um, you know, even if they wrote something impactful, it wasn't really taken in the in the right vein. And so, a lot of times, the, you know, those critical issues that were brought up were not really looked at or 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 treated the way they probably should have been. Um, you know, and so, <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm 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 recalling some of my engagements where there was only one internal auditor. And I'm thinking about today where there really is one chief compliance officer and not a staff of any. So that, you know, there's certainly a parallel there. Um, 
you know, as you kind of walk through history and you look at, um, you know, take, you know, they say that Fidesha 112 was the forerunner to Sarbanes-Oxley. You know, I tend to think that a lot of the things that we're dealing with today with regards to FCPA, you know, that, you know, um, you know, FCPA, you know, that the, the enactment of the FCPA rules and regs back in, was it 1977? Uh, I, I think you can go back to the, to that, not Fidesha 112. But I think it's a slow progression over time. I think, you know, you had the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, you know, that came into play, which really talked about internal controls. And then you had all the failures and then you had Sarbanes-Oxley and, you know, and then you, you have sort of the, the uplift of internal audit, right? Internal audit really until that time really didn't have a lift. And so anyone who had a CPA attached to the end of their name now found themselves in chief audit executive jobs. Um, some qualified, some not so qualified. Um, I don't know that, that that really exists today with compliance, but you know, that's a topic for another day. So I look at, I look at where internal audit sort of the, the way internal audit became, you know, into being, which was in 2002 when Sarbanes-Oxley was enacted and then went into effect in 2004. And I look at what happened there, um, you know, with internal controls over financial reporting and then, you know, a really big push to take a look at policies and procedures because, you know, a lot of the policies and procedures we were looking at, even when we were implementing Sarbanes-Oxley, you go back and you look and say, you look at the bottom and says, you know, written in 1977, written in 1984. You know, you, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it was kind of interesting that, uh, really nobody paid attention to that. And, you know, quite candidly, when I started in public accounting in the late eighties, shortly after that, there was a shift away from what I'll, com- what I'll call more of the uh, process piece of auditing and more towards a focus on the balance sheet. And so, you know, when I started, we were flow charting processes, you know, procure to pay, quote to cash, things of that nature. At some point that went away and then we had all these failures and then we came, kind of came back to it because, you know, when we were documenting those processes, we were looking at internal controls. Um, you know, so when Sarbanes came into play and, internal audit really got this uplift all of a sudden now internal controls play sort of a key part of everything that's going on. Um, and, you know, take, take a couple of steps forward here. You, you, then all of a sudden you have, you know, the financial crisis in, you know, late to late 2008, 2009, when all of that stuff happened and you look at, you know, why that failed and everyone now all of a sudden everyone's talking about compliance. Um, and so, you know, I don't know whether that was sort of the defining moment, but up until that point, you know, the, you look around and there were compliance officers or there were chief ethics and compliance officers or ethics officers or integrity officers or, you know, things of that nature or, or any combination of all of those. But I, I don't think really until 2010, 2011, did you really see the progression of the chief compliance officer. Um, and again, I don't, I think it, they suffered, you know, compliance has suffered from some of the same things that internal audit suffered from. We already talked about sort of a, a department of one, you know, so now you look at where we are today and you see the evaluation of corporate compliance programs come out and they talk about, you know, are you adequately resourced? Well, resources is more than money. It also means do you have the right people on your staff in order to execute the plan that you put in place, you know, in order to basically ensure that 
you have an, an organization that practices, you know, ethics and, 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 and lives on integrity. Um, you look at some of the things that plagued internal audit, for example, you know, at one point you wrote an internal audit report and you didn't get management's feedback. You just kind of issued the report. At some point that all changed and then all of a sudden it was a big deal to get management's feedback on the internal audit report. So now you look at the evaluation of corporate compliance, the ECCP that have just come out um, in the past couple of years, the revision recently, and you look and you talk about lessons learned and feedback and things of that nature. Um, you, we talk about internal audit and there was a big, huge push probably about six or seven years ago to do data analytics. Um, and people didn't understand it then. And I don't think they understand it today. However, I think what's happening today is, is that because we live in a data driven world, which didn't exist back then, it's a little bit different, but I, I think the, the, the thinking here is, is that there's a lot of data out there that tells a story and you need to figure out how to, how to, how to get into that story and see whether it makes sense or not. And so we manifest ourselves to a more business intelligent enterprise. Um, internal audit, you know, internal audit had those same struggles when they try to use data analytics for some of the testing that they were doing. Some of the more progressive shops implemented it quickly. You know, they used ACL or idea or something else. Today, there's a whole bunch of tools, including, you know, Tableau and, and some other things that you can use. So I think from an overall perspective, if you take a look at where internal audit was and where they are today, and then you take a look at com where compliance was and where they are today, there's there's a lot of parallels to be drawn. So it, it's kind of interesting to me. You are one of the few people I know who actually draws uh, or looks at uh, Sarbanes-Oxley and draws inspiration from the original formulation of the FCPA back in 1977 around internal controls in the accounting provisions. And I find it really interesting if, uh, assuming uh, with that inspiration in Sarbanes-Oxley, and then there's one school of thought that the explosion of growth in FCPA cases came from the Sarbanes-Oxley reporting requirement and management being required to certify effective internal controls and self-disclosing. Um, there are other theories as to why there was an explosion as well, but uh, that certainly would be a very interesting way to tie our two professions together. But you said a couple of other things I wanted to maybe pick up on. And one was professionalism. And you accurately, I think, talked about the need or how the Department of Justice has talked about resourcing of a compliance function. But they've also, uh, starting with the FCPA corporate enforcement policy and the evaluation of corporate compliance programs, talked about professionalism. And I think the way you phrased it was having the right people in compliance. Is, is that professionalism discussion, is that something that the internal audit uh, profession had as well? Yeah, Tom, that's a great point. There's, there was, there was a void of talent when Sarbanes was passed. And what I mean by that is that the skill sets that CPAs had at that point were not, as I mentioned before, focused on internal controls or processes. So, um, one of the things that internal audit has started to do was to take a look at their skills matrix. In, you know, within their organization, uh, and I mean the internal audit organization, do they have the right mix of people and the right talent, the right professionals to helping them support, you know, their mission and execute on their audit plans? 
I think that's, you know, when we talk about resources today for compliance, I think it's the same thing. You know, like I said, I think it's more than money. I think it's talent and skill. And so, you know, you have a compliance department that is, and I'm not bashing lawyers, but you have a compliance department that's riddled with lawyers that are not trained in accounting or internal controls or process documentation or other things. You know, that might not be the most optimal thing. And I'm wondering, you know, I don't know that I, I've seen a little bit of it, you know, in some of the, the, the deferred prosecution and non-prosecution agreements, sort of the mention of internal audit and the mention of skills and whatever. I'm just wondering whether that's the path that we're headed down, you know, today with regards to compliance. I'm wondering when, you know, you're going to see, you know, some type of writing from the DOJ where they start to talk about, and maybe you know better than I, where they really do pick apart the compliance function for not having the right resources. So let me uh, talk or ask you rather about COSO and the COSO framework for internal controls. And I read that in uh, 2014, shortly before it became effective. And it was a true aha moment for me. The first thing I said is, who wrote this? Where did this come from? This is compliance. I mean, this is a best practices compliance program. Well, uh, People in internal audit have been apparently saying that for quite some time, and COSO articulated that in the 2013 internal controls framework. Uh, what I and, I, and I was as guilty, you're absolutely right, as any other lawyer, up until that time when someone like you would come to me in, in compliance with the general counsel's office and say, look, I want to talk about internal controls. I'd go, wait, stop, sorry. I'm a lawyer. I do cool stuff. Internal controls, that's those people, and I would point down the hall, whoever those people are. Don't bother me with controls. Well, that was dead wrong, and uh, it took me a while to get there, but I did. And so when I started talking about internal controls at conferences, you could tell the lawyers in the room because they immediately, their eyes rolled into the back of their head and or they went to sleep. And then the internal auditor types were going, yeah, rock on. Um so have we seen, or I guess I, I say all that as a way to introduce the question, do you now see lawyers uh, either in the general counsel's office or more importantly in the compliance function are, are more understanding and more receptive when you go in to talk to them about your findings around internal controls, your findings in a gap analysis, or utilizing the COSO framework to test their compliance program? I think for the most part, yes. I mean, I, I see... You know, there's more robust dialogue now, and I think there's more sensitivity around the design of controls and how they're how they're effective and how we're monitoring them going forward. And accountability sure comes into play here as well. You know, and and so you know those conversations, and, and I think it comes it goes back to again if you take a look at the manifestation of a compliance the compliance function over the years. You know, we draw. You know. You have organizations where you have internal audit, you have compliance, and you have the general counsel's office, and they operate in a silo, and they really don't communicate and collaborate all that well. And those are the ones that I think are in first, uh, you know, rude awakenings, or those are the ones that have problems. The better organizations are the ones where, you know, you have people that are in the general counsel's office and people in compliance and people in internal audit working together, collaborating in a harmonistic type fashion, where they're talking about risks. They're talking about legal risks. They're talking about operational risks. They're talking about the strategy that needs to be employed in order to get them to where they are. They talk about roadblocks and obstacles. And, and, and once those conversations start to happen, you know, I think, you know, um, 
I think good things come from that. For example, you know, we talk about training um, and how important training is and, you know, what do we really train on? And so, and, and what does management really know to be effective? Because, you know, compliance is not the compliance function's responsibility. It's everyone's responsibility. You know, and internal controls don't rest with internal audit. It's really, you know, management's responsibility. So again, you know, how do we get to the business to make it more effective? And I think by communicating and collaborating and having those robust conversations around internal controls, which I think are happening more and more and more, um, I, I think that's great. And, I, you know, I, I see a remarkable change in my discussions with um, organizations and their GCs and their chief compliance officers today than I did five years ago. Jonathan, one of the things I've heard you talk about over the past maybe couple of years, but with increasing frequency, is true enterprise risk management from the internal audit, internal control perspective. Mm-hmm. Indeed, you've you've written about that very recently. Are those discussions, uh, are you able to have those same discussions with the compliance function, or would that be perhaps the next step from your perspective? No, and I think if you go back to COSO, COSO really said it's, and, and, I, and I'm sort of paraphrasing here a little bit, but, you know, COSO talked about the enterprise and the extended enterprise or, you know, you know, people outside the organization. I think, you know, we look at, we look at why organizations or businesses get themselves in trouble today. You, a lot of it emanates outside the organization with third parties. So um, I, I do think that, when you look at what COSO is trying to do, and I th- and, I, and I really do commend them. And I had I had an opportunity to um, to chit chat with Paul Sable not uh, not too long ago. We presented together in New Jersey, and um, I, I think there's always been a real push and a movement towards enterprise wide risk management. You know, the, the the writings and the points of focus, and the way the ERM program really does come together. I think what they're really driving towards is more enterprise-wide risk management, you know, and that does involve, again, it's, you know, it, it, it's more than internal audit, you know, it involves other parts of the business as well. If it's going to be enterprise-wide. So you take a look at risks and you take a look at how we evaluate risks or identify risks. And, you know, again, having all of those players work harmoniously throughout the organization, where it's compliance, internal audit, legal, you know, certain sectors of the business, you know, and, and within the operations, I think that's ultra critical today because risks are changing. They're changing rapidly. We're in a tumultuous environment to some degree. You know, some people are still going through their crisis management plan and their business continuity in business continuity mode. And, you know, they're trying to survive and, you know, new, new and emerging risks happen every single day. And unless we're talking, unless we understand what those things are from an enterprise perspective, I think, you know, that certainly leaves the opportunity for bad things to happen. And again, and I think that's what we're talking about. We're talking about becoming a more business intelligent type of an organization using data effectively. But I don't want to get caught up on the data. I also want to, I, I really, when I talk about being a business intelligent organization, I'm talking about one where there are no silos and silos are broken down. There are no lines. You know, everyone is really, you know, they're, they're functioning as one. Yes, they are separate, but they're functioning as one. And I'm talking about proper monitoring at the proper levels as well and proper accountability. So yeah, Tom, it's a, it's a great point. It's a great question. And, um, you know, I think it can, it can only get better. Jonathan, when you read the 2020 update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs, you had one of the most prescient comments I believe I've heard around that document. And it was along the lines of the following, 
business intelligence comes to compliance. And why did you see that document as really the first time I heard you talk about uh, compliance meeting or coming to business intelligence? I looked at what compliance, what the what the roles and the mission of compliance should be and what a good compliance program. You talk about the hallmarks of compliance and, you know, what should be in a good compliance program. And you look at all the things that are happening within a company. And I thought, you know, sort of the aha moment for me was, is that there's so much, there's so much information out there that if you can wrap your arms around just a small part of that and, and kind of be ahead of, or reduce the, let's just say the imperfect nature of data and use that to make the program better, then I think you become more of a business intelligent organization. You know, accounts have always been um, dubbed as historians, you know, and I think in today's day and age, you know, there's, there's some real time data monitoring that's happening now that's going on. But I think the, the, the time period from when transactions happen and, and, and they get looked at and monitored, I think it's going to decrease over time. And I think by having that information and using that information effectively, um, you know, I, I think it's only going to make for a more um, enterprise resilient organization going forward. And the resiliency is going to come from business intelligence. It's the same as, you know, you and I love baseball. It's the same as, you know, managing a baseball game to me sometimes or managing a series. You know, you know who's hot, you know who's not. You're looking at statistics, you know, you know, from past. And it's taking and synthesizing sometimes that data, you know, and, and acting accordingly. You know, you know, if you if you know your number seven hitter can't hit a curveball and you're in the ninth inning and there's there's two there's two men on, you know, odds are you can pitch hit for that individual. Um, you know, if, if in fact the pitcher's throwing curves, um, so I, it's I think we just need to become smarter. We need to work more together. There's too much. There's there are too many sharp elbows in in corporate America these days to to really. Um, you know, and I think that's going away, but I think there were too many sharp elbows in corporate America saying, you know, I own compliance, I own internal audit, I own the legal function. I don't think that can happen. I, I think if we're not data driven and using data as a weapon in order to ensure that, you know, people are operating, you know, with the utmost integrity and you're not putting the business at risk, I, I, I you know, I sort of question, you know, what we're, what we're really doing and what our, what our real focus is, at least from a value perspective. You know, if we're supposed to protect and add value to a company, if we're not doing that, I think we're missing the mark. Jonathan, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this podcast, but I wanted to thank you for taking the time to visit with me, helping me celebrate this. Uh, Jonathan and I met, we actually met through social media many years ago and started corresponding based upon uh, articles and blogs we were writing. So, uh, you can garner some very good friends through social media and uh, get I'm fortunate to call you a very good friend. So thanks for your yeah. friendship all these years. And I look forward to uh, maybe having you back for my thousandth episode uh, anniversary. I'll be here. Thank you. Much success, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I hope you've enjoyed this entire week of top commentators reflecting back over some of the key changes they've seen in the FCPA, its enforcement, compliance, 
purchases of compliance services and products and laws from outside the United States which have impacted compliance. It's been a ton of fun bringing these episodes to you. I hope you will join me Monday, August 31st for my 500th anniversary episode. Hopefully you will enjoy it and you will find it as special as it has been for me in producing it. This special series on the lead up to my 500th anniversary episode of the FCPA Compliance Report has been a special production of the Compliance Podcast Network. The FCPA Compliance Report is available on C-Suite Radio, Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and a plethora of other great platforms. So I hope you will check us out. Also check out many of the other podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network. I know you will enjoy them as well. Thanks for listening, and I hope you will check out the 500th anniversary episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.